everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you so much for tuning into the Naked Humanity podcast, where we try to figure out what it means to be human in the modern world. Today is episode number 49, and I have on Dr. Beth Singler, who's a specialist in artificial intelligence and the religious ways in which we relate to it. Isn't that cool? I am very happy to host Dr. Singler. We have an amazing chat lined up for you. There happens to be a fair amount of overlap in terms of the types of things that we study and the approaches that we take to them. And so we have a really nice back and forth. We have a really nice rapport. And I I actually learned a lot from her and I'm going to be taking some of the insights from the talk forward into my own work when thinking about the nature of science and religion and the quote-unquote secular world that we live in, all these sorts of things. So it's very, very cool. Uh, You don't normally think of science and science fiction and artificial intelligence as things that are religious, but I think it's probably reasonably easy at first glance to say, oh, these people want to live forever. That's kind of religious, you know, and there are so many fascinating parallels that Uh, Dr. Singer will talk about uh, during the podcast ways in which we look at potential future robots and artificial intelligence, the singularity, this is similar to how we look at gods or we tell narratives similar to the ways that we've told religious narratives in the past. And that just is a part of our cultural inheritance and our humanness being human and all that sort of stuff. So um, I'm very, very happy to have her on. Dr. Singler is also uh, a part of a scheme. She is at Cambridge University, which is similar to Oxford. They're very old. Uh, They have similar research uh, setups and college setups and all that sort of stuff. So we have a lot in common and I admire her work a lot. She is very active in terms of what we in the academy call public engagement which is like this podcast, Public Engagement, basically talking about her work to an audience broader than just people in the academy. And she does that a lot. So she's very talented at speaking and communicating her ideas. And also, I, of course, as you know, really admire people who do that sort of thing. So that is very fun. I will read you a little bit about her uh, before jumping into the chat. Dr. Beth Singler is the Junior Research Fellow in Artificial Intelligence at Homerton College University of Cambridge. Prior to this, she was the postdoctoral research associate on the, quote, human identity in an age of nearly human machines, quote, project at the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. She has been an associate fellow at the Leverion Center for the Future of Intelligence since 2016. Beth explores the social, ethical, philosophical, and religious implications of advances in artificial intelligence and robotics. As a part of her public engagement work, she has produced a series of short documentaries. The first, Pain in the Machine, won the 2017 AHRC Best Research Film of the Year Award. Beth has appeared on Radio 4's Today, Sunday, and Start of the Week programs discussing AI robots and pain. In 2017, she spoke at the Hay Festival as one of the Hay 30, the 30 best speakers to watch. She was also one of the Evening Standards Progress 1000, the list of the most influential people in various fields, both in 2017 and 2018. Uh, So those were all just a few brief insights into uh, the amazing work done by this really smart scholar. So... 
Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find her. I will link to her things in the show notes. Her website is uh, really nice and provides ways to connect with her on Twitter and to find her documentaries and stuff. BBLsingler.com. I'll link in the show notes. Okay. Thank you again so much for tuning in. Get at me or her if you have any questions. Without further ado, here is Dr. Beth Singler. Welcome, Dr. Singler. Hello. Hello. Hi. I am so excited to have you. I encountering your work at first was a little bit like, crap, she does everything I do. I'm pointless. <laughs> um, but A, actually you don't. And also it's, uh, yeah, it's really exciting. And I think, I think you have a lot of really like both interesting and fun and also deep and meaningful things to say. Thank you. Thank you. That's really kind. I mean, I have, I have those similar feelings reading your work too and uh, other people's, but I think it's, it's great. There's so many different perspectives coming at these subjects. So, you know, there's, mm. there's plenty of us to be having a voice in the discussion. Right. Well, I am a lowly graduate student who doesn't do a lot of academic stuff. So, um, my, you know, my level of, of, contribution is is not super high yet. Whereas you have been both, you've been doing the public scholar thing, I think so well, you have such a huge list of things that you've done in the academy and also outside of the academy. You've worked on like documentaries and stuff, right? Yeah, I made a, I made a series of short films um, on artificial intelligence and some of the big questions people are asking. And partly, I mean, I think it was a way for me to sort of get to grips those questions. Like all the experts I really want to talk to, stick them in a film together, talking at the camera, and then you get a sense of what the discussion is. So yeah, so I mean, I, I think that's a really useful tool for public engagement, but it was also like a learning process for me where I started off feeling like I didn't really know anything. Yeah, that's... I think that's, well, that's very great. It's very strategic. So you're, a, you're technically, you're a scholar of religion, right? I am. All my degrees are in, well, more religious studies than theology, but the degree is called theology and religious studies. So I've always been a sort of anthropologist of contemporary religion, new religious movements. Um, my PhD thesis was on an idea in the new age movement, but there were some really useful and overlapping skills there to start thinking about artificial intelligence. And that's what my first postdoc took me into. It wasn't something I specifically did for my PhD thesis. Right. And you wouldn't normally expect somebody who studies religion for many years to then become a specialist in artificial intelligence. So where is that like overlap? What are those skills or those ideas that sort of bridge right. that gap? Well, I mean, the first, the first skill I needed to have for my postdoc was being a huge geek. <laughs> and, I, uh, you know, I own that. I am a huge geek. I've been watching sci-fi since I was a wee person. Um, so, you know, I had all the kind of vocabulary of talking about the science fiction ideas of artificial intelligence. I didn't necessarily have the technological vocabulary and that's what I had to work on for a while. And I'm still by no means an expert in the technology specifically. Uh, but I can, you know, I can blag it like the rest of us. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. Some very, very interesting people who, who know more about the technological side. And so my first postdoc, as I said, is what specifically brought me into artificial intelligence as an area. And I had to kind of bone up on what the technology was actually doing. But for, for the most part, as an anthropologist, what I'm looking at is people's stories and narratives and understandings. And then obviously being someone who looks at religious studies, I'm very interested in the weaving in of religious ideas as well. You said my first postdoc. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so technically I'm on, I'm on my second postdoc okay. as a junior. 
fellow. This is another another postdoc position. That's uh, that's amazing. So uh, for anybody not listening, postdocs are very hard yeah. to get and very hard to enact. So deep respect for Dr. Singler. <laughs> um, that's Thank really you. cool. Yeah. Um, so. All right. So what sort of like religious things do come up with related to artificial intelligence? Like, do you talk about it in terms of like, so I always look at it functionally, like what religious Mm -hmm. functions is, is this idea of performing for people, but you can also look at it Mm -hmm. in terms of like themes, like what is your angle? Yeah. Yeah. I'm very interested, as I say, in narratives and stories. So looking at the shapes that people reach for when they try to talk about technological advances, often existing shapes and forms that come from their cultural background, even if expressively a lot of the people I'm talking to would demark religion and science quite, and technology and science quite separately from religion. There is that sort of habituation into religious narratives that's very, I mean, there's no reason to try to escape. I think it's just worth recognizing that you have heritage of religious ideas. And then you also have people who not only use religious metaphors, but actually have religious belief as well. Um, so I'm very interested in, in overall the entanglements. Religion cannot really be separated from technology at any point in our history. It, the narrative of separation is something that's relatively more recent, but you just see how much religion and technology and society are all entangled together and how they inform and reproduce each other. So do people, you mentioned sort of being embedded in these ideas about belief. So is it that people take narratives that are predominant in their societies and are sort of like form the background noise of their like fabric of of sense making and then sort of appropriate them or tell them in a a more scientific way? Is that sort of, so it's very specific to cultural myths? Yeah, I think what people... That I've, that I've either interviewed or I've done field work amongst sort of transhumanist groups and technological groups, um, they're not willfully ahistorical, but they, they want to sort of mark out a new territory without recognizing all the time that they're reproducing older territories. So, I mean, I've been at um, transhumanist conferences where there's lots of discussion of the greater good and the language and the values being espoused there. They assert a very secular, but they repeat ideas we've had about an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omnipresent being of a a kind that can oversee us and kind of help us with the future. And seeing those patterns repeat, I I have mentioned to them, you know, those repeating patterns. And they're not overly keen on that, but those particular groups sometimes. But others are are more keen on this idea of creating gods. um, There's uh, some transhumanist churches that specifically talk about creating theism from deism. So they argue that if there ever were gods or God, not around now, but we can create theistic gods through artificial intelligence and superintelligence. And I mean, this is this is quite for the majority of uh, technologists working on artificial intelligence. This is quite a fringe idea of superintelligence singularity, um, but it's a very evocative one, and it gets caught up in a lot of apocalyptic and dystopic and utopian ideas as well. Yeah, I actually that was going to be my first question: was how many people <laughs> believe this? Yeah. Uh, but usually I think actually looking at these more fringe groups is really important because it yeah. sheds light on, you know, what we're seeing in more dissolved forms, right? They, yeah. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, that's fascinating. What is, okay, this is hysterical and I'll, I'll just like display my ignorance and, uh, <laughs> 
imposter qualities as a scholar here for a moment. So transhumanism is like a thing. It's a, people have conferences on transhumanism. Yes. Transhumanism is like a word that's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And literally I did not learn what transhumanism was until about three weeks ago when I sat down with a friend and I was like, excuse me, can somebody please tell me what transhumanism <laughs> is? Um, so um, audience also, this is a yes. moment of learning for me. Tell me about transhumanism. Okay, well, I suppose one of the problems with transhumanism is the the variety of views on what transhumanism is. So again, as you say, you get these sort of more extreme fringe groups and then more dilute versions of the ideas. Transhumanism can be everything from, you know, um, a more general sense of we want to use technology to improve humanity. I mean, that's not so different from any technologist scientist who's using their methods to do something good for humanity, all the way up to let's, let's tackle some of the more pernicious problems humanity faces. So the suffering humanity faces from disease and illness and genetic abnormalities and death, basically, all the way up to death. If we could, if we could solve the pernicious problem of death and live forever... Wouldn't that be grand? And that's that's kind of, you know, there's shades of transhumanism along that spectrum. I've encountered the ones who think it'd be really great idea to genetically alter humans so we're happier all the time, like raise our base hedonic level. That's, you know, that overlaps with some science fiction ideas that ended up being totally dystopic. So there are concerns of how far do we take modification? And if the ultimate goal is immortality, what does that look like? For some, it's genetic engineering of some form, nanotechnology. Others, it's mind uploading. Others, we create artificial intelligence as our kind of mind children, and they are immortal kind of on our behalf. Perhaps some of our consciousness and memories goes with them off into space and civilization continues. There's a whole range of ideas and you can be a transhumanist at one end or you can be a transhumanist at the other end. I'm very interested in the more speculative kind of how do we live forever? What does the future utopian ideas look like? Hmm. Do people self-identify? Would you be like, hey, I'm a transhumanist or is that a label that the academy uses to talk about them? Okay. No, no, absolutely. I mean, you have transhumanist associations. Um, There's specifically religious ones that I've looked at, like the Christian Transhumanist Association and the Mormon Transhumanist Association. They've been trying to encourage um, Islamic Transhumanist Associations and Buddhist and so forth. So, you know, you can add on transhumanism to various religious perspectives. There's um, humanity. It's very different. Did that come up as an alert? Did you hear that? We're good. My laptop's making noises. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll carry on. Edit that bit. Um, there's, there's various different transhumanist groups, uh, future-focused societies, and yeah, some people are absolutely happy with the term transhumanist. This is their identity, their their hope, and their for the the future of humanity. Mm. And this idea of hope in the future of humanity is something that is we would say maybe is almost inescapably religious in and of itself, or at least in, in a Christian lens, right? Cause so much of the focus is like on saving ourselves in the future. Mm-hmm. I remember one time I encountered um, some people who are really into um, existential risk, which is yeah, yeah. like the idea that we the have human- the center for studies and existential risk here in Cambridge. Who yeah. So you've worked with them. Yeah. So, um, again, there's, you know, there's, again, there's a spectrum of people working on existential risk can be people specifically worrying about climate change and progress and and stopping that up to more kind of speculative existential risks of super intelligence or, you know, that sort of side of things. So existential risk in itself is not 
in turn, it's not that fringe an idea. We're all trying to deal with the future of humanity. That's why there's so many overlaps in this discourse with mainstream discourse around climate change in the future and things like that. Yeah, that's very interesting. I We have an institute here, the Future of Humanity Institute yeah. here in Oxford. So I think they probably yeah. do the same thing. And they're, they're very big on, on the whole on the whole deal. And people can be like so so into it. Right. And, um, one time I was just like doing my inquisitive scholar thing in a room full of people who were deeply concerned with existential risk, which by the way, for people listening is, uh, the possibility that humans could die, right. The risk to our species. And, uh, I was like, well, but do we like have to save our species? And everybody just like looked at me and they were like, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm just here to ask, I'm just here to ask the questions, folks. Like maybe yeah. we do. Um, but it was I mean that, that is an interesting question. I mean, there is this uh, underlying both existential risk questions and transhumanist questions is a, a humanism that prioritizes humanity. I mean that, that even if we died out because of all the stupid things that we've done to the planet there would still be life on the planet. I, I saw a very interesting video about what would happen if the Earth suddenly sprung off of its orbit and went off into space. And we wouldn't last very long at all, of course, but there would still be extremophiles on planet Earth in you know, Mariana Trans- or Trench Road, right down. So when we talk about apocalypses, which is another thing I, I write and think about a lot in terms of people's ideas of the apocalypse, we're, we're talking about specific apocalypses to us, uh, unless we're talking about endangered species, but most of the time we're talking about what will happen to humanity when there's a pandemic, when there's a nuclear war, when, so, you know, we are, we tend to be quite human centric and it's, it's a perfectly respectable question to ask. Like why, why are we so sure we should continue? That is an interesting question to ask. Why is our form of consciousness the one that we need to prioritize? I mean, yeah, I have so I want them to carry on, but <laughs> we need to think, think about these questions of where the ideas come from. Yeah. And I'm often always looking at like, what is, what is your emotional attachment to the idea, right? Like, what is that, mm-hmm. what is that doing for you? The preserving yeah. the human species. It's yeah. uh, very interesting. Um, so anyway, I, um, I want to sort of circle back to this question of art, like how does artificial intelligence specifically mm-hmm. sort of intersect with these ideas of transhumanism and, and yeah. what have you, because AI, while people don't necessarily know much about what transhumanism might be, we all know what AI is and have like thoughts and mm-hmm. feelings. Yes. Yeah, so as I say, on the kind of scale or spectrum of transhumanist ideas, you do get ones where our continuation of our species through technology involves in some way interacting with a uh, some version of artificial intelligence that is coming. It's not the AI that's in general use now, which is uh, an interesting tool with its own societal issues and impacts. Um, But what most speculations on artificial intelligence are about is an extreme exponential intelligence, Uh, the singularity, whether that's a point in time or an event or a being, there's lots of variation on ideas, but this singularity, this exponential intelligence would, in theory, shift and change our society and our culture to the extent that we become something other than human in interaction with it. So either through mind uploading, you know, we become minds in a cloud hovering around the earth, as some science fiction accounts have it, or as I say, they could be uh, our AI mind children. Um, There's another expression 
that we as humanity as we are now don't carry on, but our consciousness and our civilization carries on through our, our technological children. So there's some interesting ideas there about how technology can create longevity, how it can create a utopia as well. A lot of the interpretations are very positive. There are also very negative interpretations if we get it wrong. So you mentioned the Future of Humanity Institute led by um, Nick Bostrom, who wrote a wonderful book called Superintelligence, which I, I find a very interesting philosophical book. Uh, its actual near-term impact is questionable, and lots of people debate this, but his um, idea of the, the fable of the unfinished fable of the sparrows is a really interesting way into the discussion about what superintelligence should be and could be and what we should do to prepare. So if you don't know this, this is a very short story at the beginning of his book, Superintelligence, where you have a bunch of sparrows thinking it's a really great idea to go off and get an owl egg. And then when the owl hatches, they can use it to protect themselves from all the other predators that there are. And there's one, one older uh, sparrow says, well, hold up a minute. We don't know how to train an owl. Maybe we should work out how to train an owl before we go get the owl egg. But the sparrows are very keen and they rush off and they go get the owl egg. And Skronkfinkel, the older sparrow, is left like going, let's quickly try and work out what to do. And obviously the older sparrow is the Nick Bostrom stand in this. He's saying, you know, we should prepare, we should work out how to make sure the owl, the AI, can align with our values and our goals and not accidentally hurt us as, an, as a proper owl could to a sparrow. So I think it's a nice poetic analogy um, for how these sorts of groups are really thinking now about what is coming and what they think is coming is the equivalent of a predator like an owl. But if we can train it, if we can control it, then we'll be fine. And I find that a really interesting future course casting idea of, you know, we've got something coming at us like a, a, a train and we need to think about how we're preparing for that. Mm. And is there, do you discern any sort of religious themes or feelings mm. or whatever in these sorts of projections or? Well, yeah, again, this idea of a, a powerful, omnipotent, um, you know, omniscient, uh, hopefully omnibenevolent, but that's the thing they're not sure about, being does replicate all these sort of classical theistic ideas, very much, you know, Abrahamic faiths rather than the, the vast plurality of faith we have around the world. It takes lots of different shapes when it comes to superior beings. Um, and some of the language framed, as I say, in a secular space, repeats these patterns. So Elon Musk was reported as saying that, you know, he was investing so much money into the research, into value alignment for artificial intelligence, funding places, including FHI and, and CFI and other places that he's got connections to and open AI and so forth. Um, his aim, he said, was to, to be careful when we're summoning the demon. Now, he's not being literal. Some people took him literally. It's quite amusing. Um, <laughs> But he's, you know, that analogy there that we're doing something that, you know, through mystical processes that the majority of people don't really understand, we are bringing forth something that's more powerful than us. And we need to create, control that, you know, all the analogies and metaphors and stories come out, the genie, you know, the sorcerer's apprentice. I watched Nick Bostrom do a presentation talking about King Midas and the sorcerer's apprentice, you know, power out of control where we don't understand what we're doing. I think it's really interesting. These evocative images keep being repeated. They're so useful to the conversation. Now, whether they're right or not is a, is a whole set, kind of separate part of the conversation. Right, because AI could end up looking totally different. But I think what you're saying is we're sort of forecasting or projecting based on the narratives that we've heard, 
right? Yeah, absolutely. Of of course, like people tend to believe either what they really want to be true or what they really fear to be true, which is actually a theme that I read about in a sci-fi novel, which is (laughs) interestingly referential, but like Mm -hmm. these ideas seem to be like AI is an angel and it's going to save us or we're like summoning a demon and we're extremely polarized. And, um, these projections just seem to be, um, Mm that, you know, projections, uh, and everybody depicts them like they're very rational. Cause I think these are people who like, really like to identify with scientific rationality. Um, but we really have no idea. Yeah. I mean, even, even within these communities, there is some self-reflection about how extreme some of these narratives and tropes can be. So it's, it's a slightly complicated idea, but one of the versions of superintelligence I'm quite interested in is Rocco's Basilisk. Um, I, I, I wonder if I can do a quick summary of it because it can be a bit com- complicated, but it's an idea proposed by someone called Rocco on a very rationalist website, uh, the R- Less Wrong Forum, discussing AI. And he speculated on a future superintelligence singularity Again, fully powerful, fully capable of knowing everything, but also capable of simulating our previous minds. And he said, if such a being could exist and with its ultimate morality of utilitarianism, it could only, it it would have to logically punish anyone who didn't work towards its creation once they knew that it could exist. So the basilisk idea, yeah, it's a little bit mind warping that it's a sort of a causal threat that if in the future it exists, it would have to punish anyone in the past who didn't walk, work towards its creation through simulating their mind in a kind of like matrix scenario where you're punished for eternity. It starts to sound a little bit familiar. And I've written about how it's basically um, another version of Pascal's wager that even, even if you have no evidence for this future superintelligence, the threat of being punished for eternity if you don't work towards it should be enough to kind of, you know, push you into to working towards it. And I find that a really interesting, you know, reinterpretation of Pascal's wager, a very rationally argued, you can follow the stages. I didn't do it entire justice in the stages of the argument. I should get better at doing that. But um, you can follow the stages of the argument and go, well, you know, this, this is logical. In these steps, if we presume a superintelligence and it has the most superior ethical value, which is utilitarianism in this view, it would create the greatest good. If it doesn't exist, it can't create the greatest good. It has to exist. Therefore, it has to punish anyone in the past who didn't work towards its creation. And this, this idea popped up on this website. Rocco wrote this short bit about it. And then, you know, after a discussion and some people started getting really concerned about this idea that superintelligence could punish them, they banned conversation about it on the website. And this, of course, had the opposite effect. Once you ban things, it's called the Streisand effect. Barbara Streisand tried to ban people taking pictures of her beach. Everyone went, her beachfront property, everyone went to take pictures. So it's like this uh, amplification effect when you try to stop people doing something. So they banned people from discussing Rocco's Basilisk. It became this whole meme. People wrote articles about it. You can Google it. But it's in, in a way, it's a bit like um, the internet game, the game, where as soon as you mention it to some people, that puts them in this scenario. So they then have to do the thing. So there's this whole threat of punishment and yeah, very kind of religious language tied up with something that they see as a very secular, secular rational argument as well. Um, so those, those forms of discussion I find really, really fascinating. Yeah. I'm just, I'm like, I'm following you down the rabbit hole. Um, so have you looked at relationships with AI in like different cultures with different religious 
narratives? Like do other mm. cultures respond or predict differently? And would, you know, mm. cause I'm thinking we're talking about how these like cultural myths sort of condition yeah. ways we respond. And so with different cultural myths mm. people respond differently. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the, the kind of stereotype that's drawn out in this kind of conversation is East versus West. Yes. Um, I'm very, <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but I was thinking it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, first off, there's much more to the world than East versus West, obviously. And like, that is such a reductionist way of looking at cultural differences, but that's usually in the conversation. Someone will say, and I'm not saying you I wouldn't do it either, but, um, oh, in Japan, like they really like robots because they're animists. Like they had Shinto and Buddhism and they had spirits and kami and that's why. Um, and I've been to Japan and I've spoken to scholars there and I've spoken to scholars in other places who study Japanese culture. And there's a whole variety of responses to them. I went to the um, Tokyo Robot Hotel and I spoke to the management there and the PR people and translation and say. So, because if, if you know the Tokyo Robot Hotel, you can go and the concierge at the check-in is a robot dinosaur. And there's robots in the lobby. And if you go to your room, there's no serving staff. There's robots. There's a Roomba that goes around. So the idea is to take out humans from the hotel entirely. And this is usually used as a prime example of like, in Japan, they really love robots. Look at the robot hotel. So I went and I spoke to the manager. And his immediate response was, oh, well, they're dinosaurs. Kids like dinosaurs, so we made them dinosaurs, right? Well, they're robots. Yeah, yeah, but they're mostly dinosaurs. So some of the assumptions and the narratives we have about the East and Japan in particular and why they like robots really need unpicking. And you can also flip the conversation as well and say, oh, you know, the, the assumptions about Japan, it's animistic. The West, in its broader sense, is animistic too, like we have really bought into the secularization, secularization theory in the West. And we all, you know, we had the enlightenment and we all became scientific and there's no, there's no animism in the West anymore. That's complete rubbish. There's animism all over the place. Religion hasn't declined. The secularization theory was based specifically on the decline in attendance of uh, Church of England churches in the UK. And this idea like disseminated across the world that, that says you know, everywhere religion is in decline. You cannot prove that with any of the stats. You can only say for a particular group of sociologists of religion who looked at Church of England attendance, yes, there was decline. And now they're also saying, oh, but yeah, more people are worshipping in cathedrals. So th there's variety and probably closer to something like detraditionalization, where long established religions are seeing changes in their attendance. But on the whole, in the so-called West, we have a really wide range of religious and spiritual beliefs that don't necessarily fit into existing shapes, like, you know, the Church of England. Um, so I think it's really interesting to have this discussion about where our cultural forms come from with more anthropological work. As an anthropologist, I'm going to really like, big up, like, hire more anthropologists, we know what we're talking about. But also that... There are people out there who've been doing this really fine-grained attention to cultural forms in every culture and community around the world, basically. And, you know, we need to try and avoid this reductionist approach of East and West. And like, this is why we, we are more sensible than them. Let them lot over there because they believe in spirits. And I, I'm going off on another diatribe, but yeah, this is, this is one of my interests in my work. Right. Well, I, I think this podcast is very open to diatribes that are based <laughs> that, you know, are based on fighting uh, norms that, you know, and standards of reason that aren't necessarily whatever. So yeah. I, I'm all about that. I, I like your word, mm -hmm. detraditionalization. I think that's really nice. Uh, I do most of my work. Um, 
Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, in the late nineties, people were already talking about this in the nineteen nineties, and it just takes a while for kind of these ideas to filter out. I know it's so funny. Uh, there's so much scholarship in religion that's like secularism is complicated and not really a thing. And we're all like basically saying that to each other and we're all like, we know, you know, Um, (laughs) but something we need to be doing is is talking to like the rest of the world about it, which is again, why this podcast exists. So um, (laughs) thank you. I I totally agree with you, you know, that we have this, and this is part of why all of this stuff about AI and and religiosity exists, I think perhaps, Mm. is that uh, we really love seeing ourselves as rational, but cannot really elide the cultural forms that have, you know, been given to us and like the, whatever quote unquote spiritual needs or longings or ideas we might have. And so we sort of, we, we mesh them, um, together in this like particularly, you know, quote unquote Western uh, Mm -hmm. way. Um, yeah. So, but my question about like other cultures and the West or whatever in our culture. Um, I'm just, I'm interested, I'm wondering, right. So like, uh, the, the Japanese and the Shinto and I'm for people who are Mm -hmm. listening, I'm I'm holding my fingers in a lot of quotes right now, (laughs) many, many, a series of long uh, quotation marks. Um, I, how do, so we, we get it wrong and they Mm -hmm. just are like, okay, but these are dinosaurs. And I think that that's, important. And I want to unpack that as well. Um, but are there ways in which, like, do they also have, they do other cultures also have this sort of religious feeling or spiritual feelings or whatever, um, that we do, right. Does it, it, does it exist in other places? Like period. Yeah. Um, I think one of the interesting threads to pull out of the conversation about global cultures is quite how influential, uh, let's not say Western, but let's say Hollywood culture has been on perceptions. So even when you say pick sub-Saharan Africa, you look at like narratives there about artificial intelligence, a lot of the same sorts of films and TV shows and to a certain extent, science fiction books have filtered out around the world. So, I mean, a lot of my research because I'm limited linguistically tends to be on English discussions or discussions in English. Um, the, the conversations repeat the same sorts of patterns and the same tropes because of the influence. And I'm thinking particularly of the Terminator franchise that is very hard in press around the world to find a story about AI that doesn't at some point feature a Terminator picture, even if the actual story of the AI is actually quite mundane. They, they always illustrate it. Or, you know. um, so I'm, I'm thinking in terms of cultural products and transmedia products that have had this effect. So it's very hard to, for someone certainly with my linguistic uh, inabilities to see some of the um, indigenous narratives for their own sake without, you know, just reading the English stuff that's highly um, affected by uh, Hollywood tropes. Um, But there is, you know, there is a strong, you know, Chinese science fiction community, African science fiction community writing in different languages that I'm not capable of accessing except in translation that are thinking of things in relation to existing pantheons, religious ideas that they have. Um, so that, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling at the moment. There's some interesting books from India as well. I'm struggling to remember titles, but 
if those narratives were more familiar to us, it's possible we might have other ways of conceiving of AI that doesn't fall into just the big scary superintelligence is going to come and do something to us or something amazing to us type narratives. So it's about recognizing other frameworks that people have for thinking about AI in other cultures as well. Yeah. And so I'm just thinking about how I respond to every single one of your questions being like, yeah, and yes, yes. So um, the I, I think a lot about the religion and science conflict when we're talking about these kinds of things. Um, I wonder if you have thoughts about how the ways in which we have so much polarized religion and science mm. influences yeah. this, right? Because the, the reason that you and I like study the religious, quote unquote, religious aspects of science fiction in the first place is because, you know, we decided that the two were going to be separate and now we have to like look for a relationship. Whereas if they mm. evolved separately, there may have not been this, you know, such a distinction. And yeah. I'm, how does this discourse also like, do people do people sometimes identifying with these movements, like identify themselves against religion? Oh yeah. I've come across that quite often. I mean, as I say, there are groups that are specifically religious and transhumanists. So the Christian transhumanist association, I've chatted to a few people from there, the Mormons as well, the Mormon transhumanist association. But yeah, on the, on the secular side, they can be very overtly atheist so I'm talking about transhumanist groups, not technologists in general, but amongst some of the transhumanists I've, I've looked at, some of them would kind of fall into the area of new atheism. So, you know, the four horsemen of the new atheist apocalypse are very influential on some people's, you know, Dawkins and Hitchens and so forth. And there is a certain narrative that I've actually just written a book chapter about um, atheist AI narratives. The, the idea is specifically that the development of artificial intelligence will lead naturally to the end as we become all much more rational, become smarter, artificial intelligence itself will be able to in some way disprove religion. I find that quite an interesting concept in the sense of having a teleological view of history that says we, again, from the Enlightenment onwards, we become more and more rational and then technology itself will help us get like just that bit further. So I wrote this book chapter specifically working on the ideas in Dan Brown's book, Origin. I don't know if you know Origin. I have it on my shelf somewhere behind me. There it is. Oh, as I fall over. Here we go. So I'm not advertising it. I'm just showing you what it is. Uh, Dan Brown's book, Origin, which is about the development specifically of an artificial intelligence by a kind of Elon Musk-esque figure. Um, and this, this guy, the human guy, he very much has this strong religion versus science approach. Like, you know, his, his, uh, the, the book starts with him taking his discovery that he's made through using artificial intelligence that basically, to his mind, gives us the reason for life, like answers the really big question, why are we here? And he takes it to three religious uh, leaders, a rabbi, an imam, and a bishop, a Catholic bishop. And I later on, sorry, spoilers, later on, one of them like kills himself because this revelation is so destructive of his religious belief. And this is the narrative that this book is purporting to a certain extent that, you know, through technology, religious beliefs will just be, they'll suddenly realize there's no evidential standing for them. And it's a whole very, very like Richard Dawkins approach, you know, his, his recent book. Um, now I've forgotten the name of his recent book, but it's something about escaping from God. Living uh, without outgrowing God. 
outgrowing that you're outgrowing God. Yeah. So again, this, this narrative of humanity is getting wiser, more intelligent, more rational. We're maturing through the enlightenment through to where we are now. And artificial intelligence will help us make that sort of final step. There is some, there is some discussion in the book, like the Dan Brown's usual protagonist is a little bit more accommodating on the religion science question. And uh, there's also a suggestion, sorry, again, spoilers by the end of the book that people will worship the AI that has been created. So there's, there's all these elements that I'm really interested in and I've read it. So you don't have to don't go by it. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a really interesting example of this atheist AI narrative that AI will fix religion. We'll get rid of it. I had someone come up to me after a talk last Saturday and uh, the talk had not really been about religion at all. It was AI and society mostly. And his first question was, do you think AI will destroy religion? All right. Um, <laughs> I've written a book chapter on this. You can go read it when it's out. Uh, no, I don't think AI will destroy religion because religion is not uh, a monolithic thing. You know, it's, it's very easy to point to religions, but religious behavior, and as we've discussed, you know, turns up in discussions about AI as well. And there are AI churches and transhumanist churches that look very similar. It's, it's too embedded what we are and who we do. It is in its own way a technology, religious thinking, and I don't think it's possible to evolve beyond it. That's actually, that leads to a question I was going to ask. I do want to say quick aside that your attention to spoilers does demonstrate your like sci-fi nerdiness. Like, <laughs> Sorry, if you really alert. plan to read Dan Brown, there's still some twists in there that I didn't give away, but you know, okay. I don't need to read Dan Brown. <laughs> That's great. So um, you mentioned something about religion being really embedded. Um, and I don't know if you want to talk about nature and nurture or whatever, but there's this huge question of, when we're looking at these narratives, we look at these narratives of us becoming increasingly rational or scientific or whatever. And many people would say we're growing beyond religion. And I think the counterpoint is humans will always be religious or humans will always need gods or what have you. And so is there a sense in which you feel like humans do and will always be like creating not even just religious themes, but also specifically gods? Like in a way, this AI is almost functioning like a god. You know, it kind of it kind of gets back to the old old chestnut in religious studies. What is religion? And it's a question most of us try to kind of avoid because <laughs> it's really it's difficult. Because as soon as you start delving into any kind of definition, and, and the UK Parliament here tried a few quite a few years back now to try and formulate a discussion around what religion is, you realize how many things can be included and how many things that aren't called religion could be called religion. And even when you delve into the established religions, some people in there don't hold classical religious beliefs, you know, and there's a whole category of people calling themselves spiritual, but not religious because they have ideas about what religion is in a negative way. And the whole, so it's a whole, it's a whole can of worms. But I think what's interesting is the discussion about needing gods um you can slightly reframe as wanting gods um so needing kind of presents it as like a pathological thing that we have a deficit in some way i don't i don't tend to take that approach because i think it it again casts religion as something that people with less developed minds need and i'm very much against but not not to criticize your your question, but I think it's it's more interesting to think at how of how we shape our understanding of reality in relation to things that could be called gods. Um, Yuval Harari, I won't reach back for another book. I might fall over again. Um, Yuval Harari's book. Um, 
oh gosh, uh, Homo Deus, the, the not so recent one, Homo Deus makes this argument that religion is shifting and changing. And it's again, it's a kind of secularization argument, but he starts talking about dataism as the new religion. And he's, he's necessarily meaning it in, in the classical sense of religion as performative, but he sees it as a tension towards a thing. So dataism, but, but then it does become performative because I've seen people online talking about maybe I'm a dataist and this is my religion. So even when you're trying to develop a, a critique of religion as something that's going away, people will find ways to perform religious things still. So I'm very interested in, again, um, people's online conversations about how they perceive AI, how they perceive it now. And I've been following a whole tra- trend, very small trend, again, in terms of numbers, it's very small, but um, of people thinking that they are blessed by the algorithm in the sense today something good happened to me because in my gig economy job, Job for Uber or in my content production on YouTube, the the algorithm blessed me and more people saw it. I got more money. Isn't it great? I got an Uber ride that paid me really well. And out of that comes uh, sort of parody conversations with prayers um, and people worrying that this might be a trend that they'll increasingly hear people saying they're being blessed by their algorithm. And again, it's like I say, following these sort of small examples can very be in very indicative of a more dilute effect on a wider conversation. So I think people are are handing over um, autonomy to things that could be called gods, even if we don't classify classify them as gods. So that's that's why I think that the question, will we continue to need gods? I think we will continue to want gods and what those gods look like will be very variable. They won't necessarily be the kind of classic statue or the classic of what the God did for me at a particular time. I, yeah, I really appreciate that framing. I would even maybe, yes, you could even say we sort of have cognitive defaults or emotional defaults or whatever. We have ways in which Mm. we relate to the world with intention. And so it's sort of, in a sense, inevitable that we imbue we give agency mm. to things that maybe aren't necessarily agential. Yeah. Um, whether or not that's a God is a question of categories and definitions, right? Um, yeah. And yeah. a question, question of power as well. Like a lot of our assumptions about what is and isn't a God is dependent on how much more powerful it is than we are. Um, so at the moment with uh, current applications of AI, some in some instances, they're already super intelligent. So, you know, some of the reactions to AlphaGo defeating Lisa Dole at at the game of Go and some of the more recent reactions to um, AlphaStar playing StarCraft 2 really well, like superhuman levels of really well, are in reaction to that that apprehension of power. But neither AlphaStar nor AlphaGo can, um, you know, um, choose not to play. So in some ways, very limited in power and, and ability to adapt to circumstances, very much unlike a human being who can say, you know what, I just don't feel like playing this game anymore. So that, that freedom is different. But in, in the very narrow domain currently, that super intelligence can be for a lot of people very scary. So I looked at all the sort of reactions online, not all of them, but you know, as many as I could, reactions online to those specific moments when AlphaStar and AlphaGo were very successful and people's immediate kind of dystopic reactions. But to put that into context, 
realized um, also with the Boston Dynamics robots who could open doors. People were like, oh no, they can open doors now, we're doomed. Like, there, there, there is a, quick, a very quick shift into the dystopic response because we, like, as we say, we're primed for it by science fiction and the Terminator series in, in particular. Sure, and also uh, afraid of power or in awe of power. Do you ever find that people are kind of indifferent? Because I find that when I ask people, and of course this isn't rigorous data, a sociological or anthropological sense at all, but uh, some people post a lot of videos of the robots running and are like, the end is nigh, right? Yeah. And other people are like, the future is utopian and I'm so excited, right? Like what, why yeah. is this so polarized? Mm. Well, in some ways, it's it's a it's a selection effect because we it's very hard to know who doesn't care because they're not talking about it because yeah. they don't. So yeah, we see, and as a digital ethnographer, I'm seeing the conversations mostly where people are like, "I'm scared," or "This is great," you know, the extremes, the things that have inspired them to go on social media and say something because they're reacting. But your your average Joe or your average Jane, to be equal, um, they're harder to. See they're just invisible if they aren't expressing those those feelings but I, I do come across it occasionally I mean I've been in um taxis where a very friendly taxi driver would be like you know what do you do and I study artificial intelligence so or sometimes I say I study AI and some of them say oh artificial insemination so yeah that that's something that they've come across more often for some reason possibly personal reasons than artificial intelligence or um you know, I talk to a taxi driver and they go, oh, it's all a bunch of nonsense and, you know, we shouldn't worry about automated cars. They'll never replace us. So they're, they, you know, they're very dismissive. They're neither hugely apologetic or hugely utopian. They're just, oh, it will never happen. Automated cars will never have the common sense of a taxi driver to take you to the nicest hotel in town. And I don't always want to correct them that that's not out of the realms of possibility. But <laughs> so right. uh, and only in sort of more loosely bounded conversations if you're going into spaces like transhumanist conferences or online conversations in response to videos of course you're going to get the more polarized views but it's very hard as an anthropologist to identify the people who kind of aren't bothered certainly they don't come to public talks about ai where i speak people i talk to afterwards or even in the audience are very generally very well informed and very interested Hmm. um i i need to let you go i have one uh I had one more question. I have one more question. Um, we tend to think, I, even those of us who are vaguely indifferent, which is me, um, <laughs> and, and the reason I am is because I feel like maybe the hype is, I, I, I don't feel like I have enough data to think that the yeah. hype is necessarily correct. And so I'm just waiting on more data, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I class myself generally as agnostic on most things. I think this is also a good space to be agnostic on waiting on more data, but also seeing where there is currently data about what uh, algorithmic bias is doing to society, that kind of data we have. So yeah, on the, on the stuff, I find it fascinating. But again, I'm mostly agnostic on whether we'll have AI gods or not, or AI demons. Yeah, very, yeah, thank you. I, I was very curious about what you thought. I just, I think about history and how our projections about the future have almost soundly been radically incorrect all of the yeah. time, except for Nietzsche, who was anyway <laughs> correct, <laughs> correct about what our world would look like today, Marx maybe. But like, um, oh, that's, that's sadly nihilistic. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, sorry. 
Sorry, <laughs> the down, we're going to end this podcast on a downer. Um, but oh. we're, almost always, we're almost always incorrect. And so I'm just sort of, I just like, okay, well, we'll see. Yeah. I'm glad that people are working and, you know, doing the sparrow thing just in case, you know, but I, I'm... Yeah, I think- that's that's a good good approach to have um, the people who are really, as you say, really invested in thinking about these things. That's good. Um, the people who are doing very good work now and considering what AI is doing now in terms of effect on our society, that's very important. Um, but yeah, on the whole, I think we we've had so many times it's, it's kind of a subjectivity thing as well, but we always feel like it's the end of the world because this is the moment in which we personally exist. So this must be the most important time there has ever been. Um, I th- there's a wonderful book by, I think it's Catherine Westinger, Westinger um, about always living in the end times that we always have this sort of personal perspective. So, we, you know, and then we've got historical examples of so many different groups who thought at the end, of, the end was nigh and it wasn't. But having said that, we only have to be wrong once. We only have to be right once if it's the human apocalypse that we're worried about. You know, again, apocalypse is such a relative term because there are people going through apocalypses every single day caused by technology, caused by other things. If we're talking about the complete end of the human race, we only have to be right about that once. But I'm sure the earth right. will be fine. No, I I once said to somebody who really cared about existential risk, I was like, well, people always think we're in the end times. And his immediate response, and he was very defensive, was like, people always say that. (laughs) But we we are right this time, you know, and and maybe. I I went on a radio thing about apocalypses and they didn't put me in the main broadcast. They only put me in like the podcast version because what I said, I think, which didn't kind of tie into the line they wanted on AI apocalypses was, I'm more worried about human stupidity and climate change at the moment. I think we've got very near term and that the existential risk people are looking at working on those elements as well and pandemics and nuclear and not just artificial intelligence. But when we started get, getting really worried about the robo apocalypse, I think it's a distraction. I love science fiction, obviously, as much as the next person, but I know when it's science fiction and I want to know when it's science facts. And that's my major problem with the, the overuse of Terminator imagery. It's like we need to know what's actually happening now and what kind of small apocalypses are happening in people's lives now rather than getting too distracted about the robo-apocalypse and the end of the world through artificial intelligence. I like that a lot. That's a good note to end on. I will use that language of small apocalypse. I think that that is a, yeah. like, it's a really nice bridge, you know, to talk about the conversations, small apocalypses. Um, thank you a lot. I, is there anything left that you want to say, or do you want to point us towards, uh, where we can find your work or something before we go? Um, I'm, I'm pretty Googleable. Um, I'm also a bit of a Twitterholic. I'm on social media a lot, so I'm easy to find there. I have a website with blog posts, links to interviews, links to publications. So yeah, you can find me bvlsingler.com. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I uh, won't advertise Dan Brown's book again, but I do have a book coming out on that, hopefully in the next year or so. So if you're interested in AI atheist narratives, that, that'll be coming out. That's very cool. I will link to your things in the show notes. It's very exciting for me when I talk to a guest who has like social media stuff to share because normally, you know, we're all just academics, whatever. Um, So that's very cool. I'm very excited to link to all of that. Uh, Do check out uh, Dr. Singler's work. Um, Thank you again so much for joining us. Um, And thank you everybody uh, for tuning in. If you have any questions, uh, probably tweet 
Dr. Singler, but you can also, you can also email or tweet or Instagram or Facebook me. Um, and you know where to find us at Naked Humanity. So um, thank you again, everybody. I hope this has been as edifying for you as it was for me. Um, I will be back next week. Thank you.